Welcome to Resilience Unraveled, your regular guide sharing tools and expertise to build a life full of positivity and possibility. Here's your host, Russell Thackeray. So today I'm talking to Jay Papazan, who's someone I've been interested to talk to for a while. Not because, not just because he's got a really interesting book out at the moment, because that's taken as read and it's going to be great and I'm really looking forward to hearing about it, but he's got a very interesting track record as an entrepreneur and someone who's been involved in all sorts of businesses across the course of his life, and I'm really interested to hear about that. So, hey Jay, how are you? I'm doing fantastic, Russell. Thank you so much for having me on. Looking forward to it. And I'm detecting a very exotic, a very mellifluous accent going on there. So where in the world are you today? Um, I'm in Austin, Texas. Wow. Um, I'm originally from the south of the United States, Memphis, Tennessee, but I've kind of lived all over. You know, I've made sojourns to New York and Paris, and most of my southern relatives don't think I have an accent, but you're, you're probably hearing a little bit of a southern accent in there. It, it's, it's, not the sort of, it's not the drawly sort of American uh, southern accent, but it's a very, it's very pleasant, actually. I do like American accent. I don't know why. It's very, very, <laughs> very pleasant on the ear. Um, so how's Texas? How's Austin, Texas today, then, is it? Sun uh, down. It's you know it's Halloween uh, when we're talking today, so yeah. it's a little bit chilly, um, a little bit drizzly, but all in all, very pleasant. Very good. It's freezing here. I've just come back from Spain, where and it's dropped something like twenty degrees in temperature from the south of Spain to the south of England. So, I'm feeling very sorry for myself. <laughs> so anyway, well, thanks so much for spending time with about us today. Three seasons, Russell. We get summer, spring, and fall. We don't really have a winter. It's just right. it's a little warm here usually. So it's kind of nice when it cools off here. Right. I'm, I'm interviewing all these people from the states, and I hope I get an invite over there to live. So you know, to, how do you get that green card? I think everyone needs to know that, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> well, look, thanks so much for spending some time with us today, Jay. How would you how would you describe what you do? Oh, gosh, I, I wear multiple hats, but, you know, the primary hat I wear as an author um, with my partner, Gary Keller. Uh, we've authored, co-authored or published about 12 books in the last 14 years and about seven of them have been bestsellers. And books has been the thread that you can pull all the way through my life. I always was a bookworm. Um, sometime around fifth or sixth grade, I got the bug and really just all my free time was spent with the book. And that naturally led me down a path of working in bookstores to get through college and eventually working in publishing. And, you know, today I've, you know, owned a publishing company with Gary, among other things, and we write books. And, you know, that's why I'm here today. Fantastic. But your, isn't your, not really your first career, but you've had a career in um, property, haven't you? Um, in property? Yes. Um, the, the, the trick is, you know, when I joined Keller Williams back in 2000, it was a small regional firm. I'd relocated from New York City where I'd worked in publishing. My wife and I wanted to move to a different place, a little warmer place. So we picked Austin without jobs. And I worked in the tech department of this real estate company. I didn't have any real interest in real estate at that time. I, see. Um, I just wanted to get a job that would allow me to write because there was no big publishing here in Austin. And it just happens that that little, small entrepreneurial real estate firm, uh, when I joined, it had 6,700 agents. And today we have over 150,000 and the largest in the world. Wow. You know, it was set to take a rocket ride. And Gary, you know, the founder, my co-author and partner, um, has a thing for books as well. And so I found out within a couple of years that he wanted to write books. And that's where our partnership began. And instead of being a technical or a technology writer, which I thought I was kind of switching gears to do, I got to get right back into books, except instead of being an editor, I got to be the author. So that's the weird thing is that real estate, I mean, he runs a real estate empire. Um, we've written numerous real estate books. And the thing that I think has kept me close to Gary all these years, you know, it's cool. I get to work with a self-made billionaire. Yeah, That's a wonderful privilege. So I'm an entrepreneur. I'm also an employee. Um, I also I kind of think of myself as an entrepreneur. If you've ever heard that word, I have yes, very good. Yeah, uh, someone who gets to be entrepreneurial within an employment system. We own businesses, um, but my wife and I started investing after we wrote a couple of books on investing, um, and we built a lot of wealth through that. And then when she decided to go back to the workforce after staying at home for five years with our kids, um, 
I just suggest she wasn't sure what she was going to do. And I said, well, you've been great at this investing thing with us. Why don't you give real estate a try? Mm. And she, in about five and a half years, um, built a business in, in residential real estate that had over a million dollars in revenue. And today, you know, seven and a half years later, she's got a team of 17 operating in three cities. And, you know, my hope is that she'll be my sugar mama, right? I can just retire, write bad novels, and she'll take care of me. But we own that real estate business, the Papazan Properties Group. Yeah. And we own our investment properties. And I've also done some work with a private equity firm that I partnered with Gary on. So it's been a weird run. I didn't expect to be in this world, but I found real estate to be quite seductive. Um, it's crazy how different it is all over the world. And that level of chaos, right? There's always patterns in it. I'm always attracted to trying to find the patterns and figure things out. And, you know, I'm here. 17 years later and I'm still learning and that's why I'm, I, I actually surprised I love real estate right wow okay that's a great introduction now I know I'm down to 43 million questions to ask you so let's 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 I know it's, it's a broad kind of tableau when you talk about residential investing and private yeah. equity investing and yeah. a residential real estate sales firm but it's you know ultimately who you hang out with matters so 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 much and I got to spend an inordinate amount of time with Gary Keller. And the thing, you asked my wife, if you were to interview her, what's been the number one gift that we've gotten from this relationship is that every time we think we're thinking big for our lives, um, Gary will show us that we should think bigger. Right. And he's very good at pushing, pushing us out of any comfortable nest that we build for ourselves and um, getting us to explore bigger thinking and bigger action. So that's been kind of the pattern. You know, you're writing books about real estate. Why don't you do it? You're writing books about investing. Why don't you do it? And things that we didn't think were possible for us suddenly became quite possible and often probable. Right. So, hmm. so you describe that as a very beautiful series of like a, like a sort of, um, on a, on a, on a graph, a sort of very smooth upwards progression from, where you started to where you are now, I'm, I'm suspecting there might have been a few bumps in the road. Oh, every single day, it seems like. I think um, the saying we say a lot, and I, I don't know if it comes from someone else, is, you know, we, Gary's always saying, you know, you fail your way to success. Right. And his encouragement to our executives and his partners is always to fail faster. Yeah. And as long as we're learning from our failures, um, that's called growth. I mean, I, I try to, if people have had kids, you know, I usually will ask them like, how did, how does a toddler learn to walk? Yeah. You know, they, they just stumble and face plant again and again. And instead of seeing it as some sort of failure, they just understand that as learning. So, I mean, where do I start? I've made more mistakes than most people, but I think that's a byproduct of trying more things. Yeah. So, you know, we, our first investment we tried to do, we tried to flip a house and it took us six months. It turned out that there was a uh, drainage pipe under the concrete foundation that was broken. So we had to jackhammer through the foundation to fix it. It was about a $22,000 repair that we hadn't budgeted for. And all of that work, I can remember driving on my lunch break to go mow the lawn on this place. Wow. Uh, all that work. I know we didn't technically make any money, but the, the, you know, the government showed that we made $3,000 for six months of work. Ah. And so I, I tr chose to look at that as getting a paid education, right? We got to learn a lot of hard lessons and we didn't lose our shirts while we did it. You know, if you want to look at the first big failure, um, that was one of them. I remember saying, wow, are we sure we want to do this? But we learned our lessons and we got back at it. Um, but I've made horrible mistakes hiring people. Those are almost always the worst mistakes you can make. Yes. Only do they cost you money. Yeah. Uh, that individual that you hired, you know, people always blame the person they hired, even if they stole from them and they were crooked. But you hired them. That's you right. chose to let this person on your team. That's the way, you know, you have to look at it. You also denied them being where they need to be to be successful if they were not going to be successful with you. So I see those as horrible mistakes and we could go down that path. I've made bad contract mistakes. Um, I mean, gosh, for 30 years of my life, I thought that wealth was built through salary. Um, yeah. I mean, I can, we could, we could talk for days about my mistakes if you choose to. Yes. 
Well, and and the point about mistakes is that you know people who are resilient make mistakes, but actually bounce back from them and you know make different ones the next time round. Because I mean, I think that idea of failing fast is actually the heart of the heart of it. And actually, what you've described here, which is sort of t- you know where owning the mistake, and you know, I like I like your mindset around the hiring people. I think that's quite a clever idea. This idea that you know, if you've if you've had if you'd hired a bad person, you stop someone from having you know a pl- you know working in a place that could actually release their potential. That's a good way of thinking about it, isn't that? We call it accountability, yeah. you know, and we wrote about this in the one thing. And it's if you choose to be the author of your own life and take credit for all the good and the bad that shows up, you're actually choosing to be in control. Yeah. And the moment you say this happened to me or they happen to me, and you disown ownership of that, you're not accountable, you risk becoming a victim. Yeah. And that's a really tough word, and I, I, I hesitate to use it. We hesitated to write it in the book, but it's true. And, and we have a culture in our company. Have you ever seen you know, people you know, use their thumb and first finger and make an L on their forehead, you know, yeah. like Luther, right? We, we turn that into a V. And I remember when we were just a small company of about 30 people, we talked about a lot about victim language. Yeah. And we, when someone would start saying, this happened to me, or it's not my fault, um, or that's not my job, almost invariably, usually my friend Ryan Kuchera, who's no longer with us, not, longer, not he's not dead, he's left the company, he would you know, gleefully make the V on his forehead. And it just taught you to, to train your thinking to, well, what's my DNA in this problem? Yeah. Uh, because if I don't recognize my DNA, um, in this issue, then I'm I'm almost bound to repeat it, you see, or to try it again. That's a really interesting way of thinking about it because it's almost as if we're training our kids, and we're, we're there's a lot of training, there's a lot of development, there's a lot of coaching, almost in helping people to be victims, or you know, saying it's it's a good idea to be a victim, blaming everybody else instead of taking responsibility. But I, I can't see how that's useful, especially in terms of resilience, but. You know, just in terms of general life skills, you know, you have to own your life, don't you? You do. And, you know, what's sad is we we recognize this as parents, hopefully. You know, I, I think I know the parents that you're talking about. They're often called helicopter parents and they're they're doing everything and they're they're actually preventing their children from experiencing failure, which is yeah. maybe well-intentioned, but most likely wrong according to my worldview. Yeah. You know, it's one thing to keep your child from taking heroin, right? That's not sure. a mistake they need to make. Yeah. But there's so many scratched knees and embarrassments that they're perfectly resilient enough to handle and they'll grow from that and they'll be stronger for it. And the challenge is while we can see, oh, I should not let my child talk that way about himself. Um, I shouldn't let my daughter say those things about herself because she's not taking ownership of her life but we rarely take our own advice. And I, that's why I kind of enjoyed, um, have enjoyed and still enjoy being surrounded by people where there's a culture of accountability mm. because it allows us to, because it, it's, it's hard to do, right? Nobody's accountable all the time. I mean, come on, we all have those days where, you know, it's raining and everything seems to go wrong and you really do want to blame the world. But you can look up and, 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 and choose to see it differently. And that usually leads to better results over time. Mm. Yeah. Have you read Carol Dweck, Mindset? Yes, I have, yeah. The Growth Mindset, okay. yeah. I'm sure it's come up a million times here. But, you know, if people haven't read that and they're interested in resilience, I mean, I think she's one of the foremost scholars on that, along with Angela Duckworth and Grit. Yeah. You know, this idea that a growth mindset is all about embracing failure and moving through it and not... Failure doesn't say anything about you unless you quit. Yeah. I think I think what's become an interesting thing about personal resilience is this idea that you've got to you've got to have the energy to attack your own mistakes as well because there's a sort of a, there's a theory in resilience that it's okay to bounce back but then be quite hopeless during your normal day-to-day performance and you know personal resilience for me is about you know when things get tough you're still as effective. So you still have to have enough energy, enough wherewithal, enough um, vigor, vim and vigor and positive mindset and such like to be able to cope when things get tough as well. And then if it all goes wrong, then you can bounce back. But you're not bouncing back to a situation that's worse than you were before. Um, and, I, and I just think there's, there's something in that which is important, isn't it? You've got to keep learning and thriving and growing and moving forwards. 
I think I think it's uh, for me. I don't know any science on this. But I love the I love where you're going, Russell. It's I, I find myself coaching um, some of the leaders who work with me now on this. Um, I, I've always had a horrible temper. Um, it was something that I've really had to learn as an adult to control my reaction to the world. Um, I wanted to react instead of you know process and then act in some sort of you know proper manner. And I think that if you try to live this lifestyle, the tendency to rebound faster, to be more resilient is it can, I know it can be a learned trait. Let's put it that way. Yeah. I used to take failures and, um, like many writers, I can be completely neurotic. Um, like everyone else, I suffer from imposter syndrome. There are plenty of days where I'm about to walk on stage and I'm like, Oh my gosh, what am I doing here? This is, I'm just about to embarrass myself beyond belief. But the more that you expose yourself to those situations and find out that you actually do survive, and even your worst performance is survivable, um, you, I think you begin to bounce back faster. I think that's where that grit that you're describing, you know, where people um, are able to just kind of weather the storms a little better. I, I think that that can be. Maybe it's natural, but I do think it's something that you can learn. Yes, yes, I think uh, I think that's the thing. Is this? It's a in psychology we sort of say you know you have to learn to get over yourself and get on with it in a way. And that it's again it's like the victim word. It's a sort of tough. It's that sort of tough love message you need to hear, isn't it? You know, sometimes yeah. people we, we get we get so busy self indulging we don't just get <laughs> on and do the job. Well, I mean, sometimes you have to go through the, the five stages of grief. It's just how long you spend in the first four matters, Yeah. right? And I feel like on my good days, I can move. And, you know, life throws you a curveball. Mm. Um, I can move through it faster today than I could 10 years ago, for sure. Mm. Um, but there are still days where I want to wallow, right, in anger and despair. <laughs> I mean, that's called being human. But I do think that there is a process for dealing with setbacks and it's the speed with which you move through the stages um, that eventually can set you apart. Because if, you know, Gary, I'll just say this, you know, Gary is a, a visionary on my board uh, for four or five years now, I've had written, how do we become the business who will put us out of business? Mm. He's always willing to disrupt his own world mm. uh, rather than be complacent in success. So turning a 180 here is, is you just have to be used to that. You have to be flexible and it used to be I would go in and I remember once I was on the 37th draft of a chapter. I had worked so hard on this and Gary finished reading it and he very demonstrably turned the pages upside down on the coffee table across the room from him and then walked back to me and said, you know, that's great work, but I think we need to start over from scratch. Yeah. And I remembered, I viscerally, the blow that that felt like, mm -hmm. but he understands that I can spend a lot of time thinking about all the work that I put into something that wasn't useful and trying to salvage it, right? Mm -hmm. Or just start over fresh and get to the finish line faster. And he can do that relatively um, without a lot of emotion. And I've learned to do that as well. Um, it just takes time. I just remember it took me forever to get over that, weeks actually. Yeah. And now if Gary says, hey, I don't love what we've done here, let's start over. I can I can turn that corner in thirty minutes. Yeah, and I, and I like the way you said thirty minutes because I'm very suspicious of people who say you know in three seconds because I think it's human to what you know to do what you said to have the odd day when you wallow and you do go around and sort of you know stomp around the place from time to time and sulk and you know have the imposter syndrome because that's important and yeah. um, I'm very suspicious of people who tell me that they're never down, they never, you know, they never make mistakes because they just think they become, well, obviously self-delusional, but more brittle because you need to practice getting <laughs> things wrong, don't you? You have to. You have to, yeah. be, you have to be told something's not good enough, in other words, to get better. Well, would be self-delusional be an asset? I mean, I think it's uh, like I, I know people that you're describing who, who are in almost unbearably positive about everything and I, I suspect sometimes that they're faking it yes but there's also this part of me is like well maybe they're just completely not in touch with that part of their humanity like they don't have to go through that at all yeah. um i thought i heard you say that that would make them brittle over time not That's going it. through that process agreed yeah okay i i think i think so too 
Um, but I do sometimes envy them if that's in fact real, that they don't have to go through that process because where I can do that with my professional work, writing, I mean, I've been doing this for a long time. If I can't rebound from a bad chapter, I don't know what I'm doing in this business. Yeah. But in areas where I'm less sure, um, I have less self-confidence, um, it, it definitely takes longer. It took me, it was a horrible journey for me, public speaking. Um, it's not something I do naturally. I'm very much introverted, as you would expect most writers to be. Mm. But part of the job of being an author is getting used to speaking to audiences. And I would magnify my mistakes in my mind. And I would come off the stage and ask my wife, was like, oh, that was horrible. She goes, no, it wasn't. That was awesome. Mm. And I would interrogate her. Like, no, you're just, you're just saying that to be nice. Yes. And you know, she's like, no, I don't think anybody else noticed what you noticed. I think when we lack confidence and you have that tendency, you can magnify things. You just have to kind of, it just takes time and experience to get past that. I think it's counseling. I don't know. Yeah. Well, no, I just think sometimes it's this, this, there's a sort of, for some people, there's this huge problem with perfectionism and perfectionism drives continuous improvements and perfectionism drives a complete inability to do anything because unless it's perfect, you can't start. And I think, you know, increasingly I notice with people who have more or less resilience is, is this correlation with, um, with this idea of um, perfectionism. And you know you're right about you're right about this thing about presentations. You know, and the way of dealing with fear is you get on and face it. Um, but dealing with perfectionism is a tricky one because you can't see it in yourself. You just realise that you can't do anything because you know everything surrounds you is just wrong, isn't it? It's you, you can't be good enough, and uh, you need. Well, to, and I think you know one of the, the principal things of resilience is to be able to ask other people for help. And that's supposed to be fascinating about your relationship with your business partner because you've always had someone and you and your you know, your sort of significant partner as well, obviously. You've been able to ask other people for advice and guidance and have somewhere else to go, haven't you? That seems to have made a difference for you. Oh, it's it's huge. And I it, it happened to me, you know, first the first place it happens, obviously, probably is with people's parents and their close friends. Um, and I was good and lucky, and maybe my parents helped a lot, that I, I chose good friends in life that were good at helping me through these moments and telling me, you know, I want people to tell me if my fly's down. I want people to tell me if I've got spinach in my teeth because that's a lot better than realizing three hours later that that was the case yeah. um, and giving the people permission to do that in your life. Gary did never ask for permission. That's just what he does. Mm. My wife, um, maybe that's why I fell in love with her, does that quite naturally as well. Um, and that frankness in the relationship um, allows you to get another perspective, an honest perspective on your life and move forward. I will tell you that if all of that is kind of an entrepreneurial approach, a natural approach to getting that feedback, um, for about six years now, um, I, I pay a coach. Yes. You know, I've got a coaching call scheduled at two o'clock today for an hour. Um, I pay a small, uh, call a small fortune, but you pay a lot to have someone who's highly qualified to ask you hard questions about your business goals. Mm. And I've found that to be an invaluable relationship. My wife has had coaches as long as I have. She currently has two um, that are coaching her on different aspects of her business. And I think that if you look at people who are exceptionally resilient, right, um, I think that they do surround themselves with these relationships and sometimes they even pay for them. A coach is a great thing to have. Yeah. Well, well, why not? I mean, if you look at elite sports people and you know elite performers of any nature, theater, ballet, whatever, they all have coaches because actually no one person has all the answers in their in their own head. So you need to have someone else to to you know it's it's, it's someone else to tap into, don't you? And you need to have someone you need to have someone you pay who you can actually tell the truth to as well because you can't do that with colleagues and business partners and such like you can't always tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Well, I mean, that was the Yes, that's absolutely true. I mean, there, everybody hopefully has a couple of colleagues that they can trust to be confidants. Yes. But that, that often tends to be people who are going to agree with you. Um, it's more about getting stuff off your chest. Yeah. Um, you might have a business mentor. That's wonderful. Someone who's lived a lot more than you have. They can also help you reflect on what you're experiencing. Your colleagues don't always have that perspective, um, but a mentor can and a coach sure can. Yeah. 
And I'm very pleased as a coach myself to hear you extolling the benefits of them. So that's, that's good news. Um, I, I preach it. I honestly, I, I do preach that. If you, the subtitle of our book is the surprisingly simple truth behind extraordinary results. Yes. And the operative word there is extraordinary. If you really want to be extraordinary at something, an extraordinary father, an extraordinary husband, an extraordinary business person, um, you're going to need more than just what you brought to the table yeah. to be extraordinary. Almost everyone who tries to be extraordinary at something ends up with a coach um, or at least a mentor so that they can fail faster, right? They move. One of the ways you fail faster is to take a proven model for accomplishing something. And coaches often will arm you with that. Mm. I remember my first golf lesson. Mm. Have you ever played golf, Russell? Oh, yes. <laughs> okay. So hopefully some of our listeners have at least gone to a pitch and putt or a you know one of those places and held a golf club. But if you've ever been instructed on the right way to hold a golf club, it's completely unnatural. Yeah. Right? I wanted to hold it like a baseball bat. Mm. Right? And um, but then you have a coach says, no, I want you to wrap your pinky around this finger and it feels completely unnatural. Mm. But that's actually a model that will allow someone to advance much more fast, you know, in an unnatural sense. Fat, they'll, they'll skip a lot of the mistakes other people make because they jump straight to the model that works. Brilliant. We could talk for hours, Jay, but I, I want to get onto the subject of books, if I may, because it's, it's rare to meet someone who's got your expertise. So can you just take me back to the very first book? What was your sort of, what was your process for getting a book down? Because I know a lot of people sell these get-rich-quick schemes, you know, write a book in 10 minutes and all that sort of malarkey. But, you know, how did, how did you approach it? How long did it take? What, what was the result? Sure. Uh, now you're talking about my passion. I love talking about books. I, and I'll just preface it with this. Um, my experience is in nonfiction, um, business, and how-to books. Yeah. So everything I say should be screened through that filter. And if you're trying to write um, the great American novel or a giant book of poetry, you need to take everything I say with a grain of salt, right? Because I don't only th those are the same models. Um, when I wrote our first book with Gary, I was very much the writer. I, would, I don't think of myself as much as the co-author. Um, Gary and Dave Jinks, who was our partner at the time, they were real estate experts. Between the two of them, they had about 30 years of elite real estate performance experience. And they coached and masterminded with the best in the business. Right. So my job was to help them um, relatively quickly. We wrote the book, The Millionaire Real Estate Agent, in about 90 days. Wow. Um, we would we had an outline, we had a lot of premises, and my job was to interview them um, and help them turn that into words on the page. Right. Now they're both excellent writers, but they didn't understand how books were made, and that was my job in, on the team. And I contributed some intellectual material because um, I lived a little bit by that point. The next book, uh, so in that one, our process was this. This is like, I guess, if you're writing a book with other people who are experts, Every morning we would come in, we had our outline on the wall on flip charts. We would pick the section we felt inspired to write. It was mostly chronolog chronological, but not perfectly. And essentially we would argue for an hour about the best way to make that point. Wow. Three very opinionated people saying, no, I think you should say it this way. No, I think this is the right graphic for that. And then we would agree on a detailed outline and then I would go write it. I sometimes was writing 14 pages a day. And the next morning, we would review that. If we need to do another round, we would, or we'd move on to the next section. Right. So that was one process. And that's when you already have the knowledge in your head. The second book we wrote was called The Millionaire Real Estate Investor. And even though Gary had become a millionaire investor himself, neither Dave Jinks nor I had ever done it. Yeah. So we didn't want to make it Gary's thoughts on investing. Um, we modeled a book called The Millionaire Next Door. Um, and we interviewed 120 people who had a net worth of a million dollars in real estate investments. Oh, wow. Not, not value. I mean, they had enough, that equity. And um, what I love, and this is, this, is, this is a good one to write down if you're thinking really seriously about pursuing nonfiction. If you interview 100 people, in my experience, you'll find 10 true experts. Yeah. And those hundred people all have performed at a high level, but not everyone thinks about the game strategically and can actually articulate what they've done. Yeah. And so it became really apparent to us that out of the 120, about 12 
were not just really good at it, they were really good at describing what had happened. Mm -hmm. And what we look for is, well, what did those individuals actually have in common in terms of their approach? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, if I'm trying to model, you know, Gary Keller's investing strategy, well, then I would go become a career real estate agent. And that's not going to work for everybody. But that was integral to his approach because he was exposed to the inventory every single day. And that's how he found his deals. Um, but if you look at 12 millionaire real estate investors and say, well, how did they find their deals? You start to see a different pattern. So I think that's really important. You look for what do highly successful people in a field all do? Because what they all do tends to be the fundamentals. Yeah. And it tends to be something that almost anyone else can do too. So Does that no, make sense? So that's so, so in the funny stuff where there's no surprises. Um, I'm sorry. Can you ask me that again? It, it, does that mean in a way there's no? Does it mean that amongst the people who do the fundamentals and the top twelve, for example, are there any real surprises in what people do? Um, yes and no. I think we we always go in with a hypothesis, or we can't ask questions. Right. And I we firmly believed that location was one of the core things that made a successful investor. That they knew how to pick location, and it turned out to be broader than that. Um, you know, one of the the twenty percent items, the core items that made them successful was criteria. And so, in one sense, you do get surprised. There were many things that we went into the one thing, and we we spent about five years researching that book. And there were things that we thought were true that proved not to be. So we, we absolutely get just, you know, surprised. But that process of total immersion and looking for patterns, what happens is, is that there does tend to be a, a, a broad consensus around most things that are important. And that does make your job easier. If, you know, 10 out of 12 describe the phenomenon the same way, you're starting to get a sense that, you know what, this is more than just coincidence. Right. And in that sense, it's not surprising. When you go to write the book, you're like, yeah, well, duh, everybody said the same thing on this. This feels kind of obvious now that, I, now that I'm looking at it. It's an interesting approach, sort of interviewing experts and then, you know, to drive a book. Because in a sense, the content has been created for you. Because what you're doing is, like you say, is you're synthesizing and spotting the patterns and, you know, spreading it, you know, sprinkling your own pixie dust across the top of it. Is that, is, that, is that a process you've had in common in all your writing? Um, and most of it, yes. And I mean, frankly, you know, I could now go back and rewrite the book from a position of being an expert myself. Yeah. But when you interview enough people, um, you become an expert. I mean, that's, that's what a researcher does, right? They go out and investigate some of it's firsthand. And, you know, I went out and did a lot of investing during that journey. And I learned some hard lessons. That was the first failure story I told you. That was six months of hard labor for practically nothing other than information. Mm. And then you learn, you do, and you observe. And I think, you know, great journalists do that way. You know, they don't report facts that aren't corroborated by other people. Um, and that's how you start to find the truth is for looking for those things. I, I love it because it's liberating. I don't have to go out and become an expert in cricket to write a book on cricket. Right. Uh, I can go out and interview them, and that's what a lot of nonfiction is. If we only choose to write about what we've ourselves become experts in, um, it would be hard to be a career writer. Yes. Because you can only become an expert in a handful of things in your lifetime. It just takes too much time. Yes. Yes, it makes a lot of sense, actually. So I'm, I'm, so I'm thinking amusing as you're, as you're chatting. So as, as someone who struggles to write myself, I'm just learning some lessons from you here. So, 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 when you, so we so, do the interviews. We yeah. transcribe them. Yeah. We then try to find the common patterns, and we call those models. Mm -hmm. If you look through any of our books, there's a lot of illustrations in them. Mm -hmm. And we tend to be visual. I think, I think six out of ten adults are visual learners. Yeah. And a lot of business people love a visual model because it helps them shortcut, shortcut the process. Yeah. So we tend to then map out the book based on what we learned. Um, we identify the gaps that we still have to investigate. And then um, you know, Gary and I will have these binders like literally for every chapter. So if we had in uh, the one thing, we have a chapter, you know, multitasking is a lie. And I had actually three four-inch binders that our team and myself had pulled together of interviews, research papers, um, excerpts from books we'd read on the topic, our favorite quotes and stories around it. And then my job was to take our outline and then pull the best pieces to tell that story. 
Yeah. That's where it gets to be kind of fun, right? You're half architect, half builder, and you drafting to me is the most indulgent part because you've got all the pieces up there and you get to be a pure creative. You, oh, wow, I didn't think that research was actually going to work, but it does. And you get to tell the story now. And then we do that by just essentially divvying up the book. You know, I'll ask Gary what I, he does really good. Um, at the 30,000 foot level, um, he's very good at inspirational writing. He grew up with like Zig Ziglar and all those guys, Napoleon Hill. Mm. Uh, I tend to gravitate towards the research and I like the science stuff and we'll divvy up the chapters and write multiple drafts and we'll edit each other and go back and forth until you, you it's really hard to tell unless you wrote it, who wrote which sentence, where. Yeah. And that's kind of our process. A lot of editing, a lot of rewriting, a lot of review is where the quality shows up. You're describing quite an unusual process because most, I, I sort of have this, you know, sort of idealized picture of writers in the garrets sitting upstairs, you know, sweating and throwing bits of paper into a bin somewhere. But, the, you know, your, colli your collegiate right? yeah, you know, yeah, process sounds a lot more fun. Mouth. An old-fashioned typewriter and a bottle of scotch somewhere. That's the, that's the myth of the modern writer. Well, that's a private detective, maybe, one of the two. But I mean, yeah. your, your thing sounds much more fun. Um, well, I'm, I'm writing partner books, which is a little unusual. Um, most people do this as a solo journey. But there's a lot of people out there. I know um, Ryan Holiday has written long blogs documenting his process. But it's not dissimilar. He just doesn't have someone else. He bounces the ideas off of himself and he edits himself. Um, I like to write on a team. I've written by myself before. But I find great joy if you can find that partner. For some people, it's their editor, right? Yeah. But if they're not a co-author, you're unlikely to do as many iterations on the manuscript as you would. You know, An editor will go through it once, maybe twice. Um, but you're not going to get that same, hey, let's keep churning this thing until it comes out just the way we want it. Yeah, great. So tell me about the current book then. So what was the motivation for writing this? Obviously, it's, I, mean, I suppose every book is a culmination of your life. So, so where, what was this all about? Um, you know, this is the heart, in the heart of the real estate recession. Um, we were working on a course. And I remember Gary wrote a short essay um, to kick it off. I was running the, our university and our, our, our training department at that time. And it was called The Power of One. And I remember sitting down with him to share my edits. And I just said, you know that this is a book. And he goes, yeah, I thought that when I was writing it. Hmm. And my aha, I mean, I've been in publishing now for 20 years. And at that time, it had been more than 10 years. And I, I was like, this is not just a book, it's the book. Because this idea, you know, the one thing fundamentally is identify what matters most and give that your first and greatest focus, right? That would be the, the, the shortest pitch I could make for what the book is about. Hardly anything new, um, but we did try to construct an approach to doing it that was a little bit more practical than just saying, you know, begin with the end in mind and focus on what matters most. Yeah. Um, so we did install a process, but everything that Gary has done exceptionally well has come from this approach. And he's taught it to his leaders, and we had some of the stuff that's in the book has been in our, our company for decades, and it's part of our culture. And our job then was to, we, we, we outlined the book in a matter of weeks, uh, but then we hired two independent researchers, and we spent, like I said, almost five years having them refute or prove some of our theories and offer new information that we hadn't considered. Right. So that was kind of the process there, is that we, kind of by accident, kind of Gary articulated a fundamental truth in his journey. Um, and it was one that anybody who knew him or watched him said, wow, that is kind of his secret sauce. So it was going to be very, um, have a lot of integrity in terms of lining up with what he's actually done. And also we felt like it was important because you look at most people today and we suffer from too much. Yes. Uh, we all feel like we have a lot of obligations and, you know, in this wonderful technological world, we also have an amazing encumbrance of opportunities. You know, like, well, I could, I could work remotely from Tahiti if I chose to. Like, there's a lot of choices that we have that other generations didn't. And I think our book got a lot of luck in that we 
happened to write it at a time where people did need something to help them filter through all the choices they make every day and arrive at better ones. Right. So, so what's so basically, as you say, it's a simple idea. Um, so, how how do you how do you bring that to life for people? How do you make that? How do you build your model around this idea that you just you, that you just you know you're focusing on the thing that matters? Well, the the heart of the book, and we'll jump to that, um, is this idea that we have a focusing question. And if, you know, Gary and I agreed, whenever we write a book, one of the things we do beforehand is when someone closes this book, what will they do or think differently and how will this impact their behavior? And the thing that we most wanted them to do after reading the one thing was just to ask the question, hey, what's my one thing? What's my one thing today? What's my one thing this week, this year for my life? And I find, and I've literally taught this hundreds of times to thousands and thousands of people, most people have a strong sense of what their true priorities are, but they're so busy, they're not stopping to acknowledge them. So they end their days sweating and in a lather from rushing around, doing lots of activities that weren't particularly productive in themselves and feeling guilty for not giving more time to the things that mattered more. Right. So the book, um, we start by trying to get rid of some of the things that we think are unhelpful, like multitasking, um, introducing the concept of Pareto's principle, which I'm sure a lot of your listeners are aware of, you know, that 80% of what you want comes from 20% of what you do, that there is a vital few, and there's a lot of lot written about that. Yeah. And then it culminates in this question, what's the one thing I can do such that by doing it, everything else is easier or necessary? And it's a long-winded question, but it really is a powerful one. And when people ask it, they almost always arrive at the right answer or so close to it, it doesn't matter. And so the key is that to ask that question, what can I do right now that would have the most impact in what matters most for me right now? And then the next step is to time block it. And time blocking for us is simply making an appointment with yourself to do your work. Most people use their calendars and appointment books just to meet with other people. Mm. In our research, the most successful people make lots and lots of appointments for them by themselves. And you'll hear in their language, oh yeah, at 5 a.m. I get up and I work out, and then I do my juice smoothie, and then I meditate. Well, they may or may not be on the calendar, but those are rituals that they do every single day. Yeah. And when people ask them to interfere with those things, they often say no. They say, no, I've got other commitments then, can we do it later? And professionally, a lot of them, you know, we teach people that between, you know, 8 a.m. and 12 p.m., if you can get four hours, ideally, but in reality, for most, it's going to be a couple of hours and launch your day doing your number one priority for that day, that week or that month. Um, most of the other stuff is going to fall into place. But that appointment is so critical. Um, there's some research that came out. Um, oh gosh, I'm going to misquote this. It's like the British Journal of Health Psychology in 2009. And they asked three groups of people to exercise for 20 minutes a day. And the first group was the control group and 38% of them successfully did the task. They had a motivation group that was told the benefits of exercising daily and 35% of them completed the task of exercising 20 minutes a day. Yeah. And then the last group they called the intention group. And they got the same motivational pamphlet as the motivation group, but they had one additional task. They had to make a written commitment on these days at this time in this place, I will exercise for 20 minutes a day. And that simple act of navigating their future time, identifying when they could actually do this task, they were 91% effective. Yeah. So it tripled your effectiveness, the simple act of saying, well, you know what? By the way, that's a calendar invite in a practical sense, right? I'm, I'm making a commitment about when I can do it. And navigating your time to say when you're going to do that thing is a huge step. So to me, it's kind of a, a one-two punch of figuring out what that top priority is and then making a commitment in time to do it and then protecting that commitment would be the final step, which is its own battle, right? Because yes. Just because my office door is closed doesn't mean someone won't knock. Yes, and that, that that's very interesting, isn't it? Because um, 
What am I trying to say? It's this idea of deep work, isn't it? This idea that you, you yeah. give yourself the time to concentrate. And, and I've noticed it myself, and I've read all the evidence on this, that the, the less time you spend concentrating, the less effective a concentrator you become. That's not great English, but I think that makes sense, doesn't it? We're so distracted by all these different inputs at the moment. Actually, our capacity to do deep work is being affected, really. Yeah, there's a. You're using the title of Cal Newport's book, and I've been fortunate to interview him a few times on this journey, and he's written wonderfully about exactly what you're talking about. And there's another book, and I forget the author called The Shallows. Yes. And it's fabulous talking about the difference between people who spend all of their time reading online and reading literature and what that does to your brain. I mean, yes. the plasticity of our brains is such that what we do most tends to be what we do easiest. Yeah. So developing a pattern where we have blocks of time, um, and I think big things require bigger blocks of time. I mean, writing a book, for me, two to four hours is kind of the minimum to have a, a really productive day. Yeah. I can't just sit down for 30 minutes and write off a wonderful paragraph. I have to get into that frame of mind. I have to reread the research, right? There's a process to get there. Um, I don't think you'd find many elite athletes just practicing for 30 minutes a day whenever they could grab it, right? That's right? So they have a bigger block of time to do the thing that fundamentally matters the most. But I usually tell people, don't rush out and block off four hours tomorrow because you'll go crazy because you, you don't know how to do it yet. Start with just 30 or 40 minutes. And the first thing you're actually learning to do is keep the commitment of showing up and protecting that time. Yeah. And for a lot of people, identifying an island of time in their days then they have when they have control of that time and realizing that they can make that commitment is a really a breakthrough moment mm -hmm. there was some research from Australian researchers that we briefly mentioned in the book around habit formation and when people had successfully formed a habit there tended to be a halo effect and like you know they tended to eat healthier they 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 had more tidy homes less dirty dishes I mean they even got sick less and I think that's because, and we had conversations with them, but I'm not the expert, that there is this confidence that comes with realizing that you're in control, going all the way back to the beginning of our conversation, right? Mm -hmm. Not only do we choose to think of ourselves as accountable beings that can be in control, but when you realize you can grasp the reins, when we often feel like we're being swept down the river, I just totally mixed up the metaphors there, so forgive me. I'm in a river and I'm on a horse. But you can grab the reins and take control of your life. Um, it's amazing what that will do for people and how they can then build on that success for more and more success. Very interesting. And actually, you know, as you're chatting away there, I'm looking at the skills of weathering the storm. You know, we are, again, going back to the conversation we're having earlier. You've actually identified the skills of weather weathering the storm, you know, gr gritting your teeth, getting down to it focusing on it, making sure that you have the discipline to do what you said you're going to do, but also to practice getting used to it in the first place and then, you know, developing those good habits. So, you know, that, if I may steal your process and call it mine, I, I probably should. No, I wouldn't. Well, <laughs> but I know, do think, I do think practice... It's only our process and that's what we observed, right? Yeah. So it's the process culminating in lots and lots of conversations. So that's it. I can only take ownership of the words we chose to describe what I think is a fairly common process it is, yeah. that really extraordinarily people follow, consciously or unconsciously. It is, it is interesting. I mean, years ago, I was a professional musician and, you know, colleagues, I've told the story many times, and, you know, colleagues of mine used to practice like a professional piano player. He used to be, you know, practicing for eight hours a day. And, um, and I used to say to him, you know, eight hours a day, you know, how'd you do that? And he said, well, I'm used to it. It's, you know, I'm, I'm not off, you know, building a ship in, in that time. I'm actually just practicing the piano. And it's that point, isn't it, about, you know, you learn, you develop, you practice your skill, you craft your art. And it's the same as working on a call center desk in, a, in an organization or you're, you're going and, you know, visiting 100 different properties a day. It's, it's part of your craft to be able to focus your attention um, over the long term on what you're trying to do to, to build expertise. and I, I can see how you would become extraordinary at that. It is about doing less better, isn't it? it? It is, and it can also, like anybody who's ever built the habit of exercising and then gone on vacation and abandoned it, knows that you know we all go through rebuilding periods. You know, During the, the year or so that I was very heavily focused on promoting the one thing and 
and I, you know, we'd finished the writing process. Um, I, I left behind some of the habits that I built as a writer. Yeah. And when we went back to write our next book, I had to rebuild some of them. So it's not like you get to get these gifts for life. They can be built faster than most people imagine. Um, I know that I went from never having run three miles to running a marathon. And this was many years ago, 1997, in fact. But I did that in three months. Yeah. It's amazing what you can build up to methodically. But yeah. it also will go away. Yeah. Anyone who's ever learned a foreign language knows that if you don't practice it, it will fade. Yeah. So um, it goes both ways, is I guess what I'm saying, is that it's not like this. People get choose to be extraordinary, but it's also a commitment. But once you've built it, it takes a lot less ener energy than it does to build it in the beginning. Yeah. Maintaining something is far easier than building it. Yeah. Just like bouncing back almost. Yes, yes. Jay, this has been fantastic. I, actually, I, I've just looked at the, the time on, on the um, on the monitor, and I've just been very disrespectful of the time and gone way over the time we agreed. But I've really, <laughs> I've really enjoyed, I've enjoyed this so much. <laughs> I've been uh, focusing well, on I, I totally focusing lost on your time too. We were, we were in the flow a little bit together there. We were. No, no. Tell people how they can get hold of this book, what it's called, where where did you get it? Tell me all about it. Um. Well, luckily, wherever they are in the world, they should be able to find a copy. It's in about 30 translations now. It's called The One Thing by Gary Keller and Jay Papazan. And if they go to theonething.com with the number one, they should be able to find out everything they need to know about the book, what we're doing, and even on like my Facebook and Twitter and all of that stuff if they want to reach out. Brilliant. Jay, this has been such a privilege. Thank you so much for your time. I'd love to pick this up again at another time and maybe, um, I, you know, particularly, you know, see how the book goes, maybe the next one as well. But I'd love to continue our conversation at another stage. Please, anytime. And if you find yourself in Austin, Texas, let me have a little warning and we'll grab a cup of coffee. I, I hardly need to be, uh, be encouraged more than that. I should be seeing you next week, given half a chance. So, uh. <laughs> Jay, I'll take look care. To it then. Thanks ever so much. Speak to you very soon. Thanks for listening today. I hope we really got some value from that. I certainly enjoyed it myself. Remember, there's only other podcasts and with tools and techniques, different speakers and different resources available in this series of Resilience Unraveled, so please feel free to subscribe. Why not also drop across to Facebook and join our group, Resilience Unraveled, and join in the conversation. Also, if you wanted to whip over to iTunes and drop us a review, that would be fantastic. Thanks ever so much. You can get hold of us at qedod.com or at personalresilience.com where you can get hold of free ebooks, resources, some online courses, and even some coaching. But whatever happens, I look forward for you joining us on the next edition of Resilience Unraveled.